Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Ben Delat from Active Motif on this show. Usually, I introduce our guests at the beginning of each episode, but since this is a special episode, I want to mix things up a little bit and ask you, what is your background and how did you end up at Active Motif? Thank you, Stefan. Uh, I'm super excited to be uh, in this show. And uh, yeah, I'm going to give you a few words uh, about my background. So um, I did my bachelor's degree in biochemistry in a small town called At in Belgium, Uh, and uh, it was biochemistry, so I didn't really do epigenetics at the time. Um, then I worked two years as a lab technician, and I worked in um, uh, the regulation of insulin and glucagon uh, by uh, Langerhand Heilert. So again, no epigenetics, but lots of biochemistry, lots of molecular biology. Then I went back to school and did a master's in molecular biology, And I did at the time my thesis in Professor Van Lin's lab on HTLV integration and expression. So at that stage, I got involved with epigenetics because HTLV is a retrovirus that can integrate its DNA into our genome. And so as you can guess, its expression can be regulated by DNA modifications or histone modifications. So, so I was working a little bit on that. That got me really excited about epigenetics, and I started to do a PhD in uh, Professor Fuchs' lab in Brussels at ULB University. And at the time, I was doing my thesis on TET proteins that are um, epigenetic enzymes that can add a hydroxymethyl group on cytosine, a methylcytosine. So already, already uh, yeah, kindling your interest for DNA methylation, right? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I was... Yeah, I've always been interested in DNA modifications because, you know, histone modifications, they were very well known at the time. There were already lots of modifications that were discovered by Tony Kuzaridis uh, and, and other, you know, great scientists. And um, so so there were, you know, DNA modifications that was a little less known, I would say. We, we had DNA methylation that was very, you know, well established, but um, hydroxymethylation was fairly new. And, and the fun part is that when I studied my, my, my thesis, there were only two papers on TED proteins, <laughs> two papers in back-to-back -back in science. So, so it was very easy to do the literature. <laughs> so, <laughs> and what was exciting was that uh, everything was to be you know, discovered at the time. We knew nothing about the TED proteins, almost nothing. So, so it was really exciting to work on that. Um, You know, so I did I did my PhD in in, in uh, Professor Fuchs' lab, and then I flew uh, to La Jolla in uh, in in California, and I did my postdoc in Angela Rao's lab. So, who is the the the, the person that who discovered the tech proteins? And so I got even more exposed into the DNA modification field and and epigenetics. And at that stage, at that time, I became, you know, interested in developing methods. So, so, so my interest was, was picked in uh, because I was working on R loops and, and epigenetics. And uh, the methods that were available at the time to study R loops were not so great. So, so I tried to design a new method. Um, so got really excited about development of methods. 
And then after my postdoc, I did a brief stay in a local startup uh, called Encodia in, in San Diego, in Sorrento Valley, and then got recruited by Activative to lead the, the, the research group. So I've been working at Activative for about three years, uh, been leading, leading the research group at Activative in R&D. And you know it's been it's been it's been quite a ride. It's been very exciting to do that, and I'm really thankful to be here. Yeah, it sounds like you've already worked with the big shots in the field, and uh, your your uh, career really makes sense to then end up in, in with us. Luckily, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And you know, it's 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 in Carlsbad. It's a really it's a really nice office. I it mm -hmm. no, I really enjoy being there. Uh, it's it's really exciting. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so maybe we can start the scientific part of this episode by talking mm -hmm. a bit more about DNA methylation. Could you maybe give us a brief introduction into 5-MC, so the methylation of, of cytosine? Right. So so 5-methylcytosine or 5-MC, is a, it's, it's an epigenetic modification. So what, are the, what does it mean? It means that it's a chemical modification of cytosine that is being added by enzymes, Right. And, and so, it, to be very exact, it's a methyl group that has been added on the fifth carbon of the cytosine. And, you know, 5-MC has been discovered quite a while ago, almost a century ago, by, by Johnson and Coghill in, in 1925. And at the time, they were working on uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis and found that there was a, a great amount of methyl cytosine in this organism. And now we know that it exists in several species. So it ranges from bacteria, plants to mammals, mouse and, and humans. And methylcytosine doesn't have the same function in different organisms. For instance, in bacteria, if we come back to bacteria, it plays a role in protecting DNA from restriction enzymes. It plays a role in DNA replication. In human, it mainly plays a role in gene expression. And so we'll see a little bit later that, uh, you know, uh, 5-MC can decorate genes and, and that, that affects their expression depending on where it's located in the gene. So um, it's also, it's, it's, as I said, it's an epigenetic modification. So it's deposited by enzymes. And in mammals, there are three enzymes, DNMT1, DNMT2, and DNMT3. So DNMT2 is mainly responsible not to methylate DNA, but to methylate RNA. So we're not going to talk about this guy. But DNMT1 is what we call maintenance DNA methyltransferase. So that's the enzyme that's going to replicate DNA methylation. So when cell divides, they're, you know, genetic material is, is replicated, right? And, and the information about methylcytosine has to be replicated too, and that's done by DNMT1. DNMT3 it was, is what we call de novo methyltransferase. And so that's the enzyme that's going to methylate unmethylated regions. So new regions that have to gain methylation will be methylated by DNMT3. Now, it's been shown that DNMT3 can have a little bit of a function of maintenance as well. And the maintenance DNMT1 can have a little bit of a function of de novo as well sometimes. So it's not as simple as that. But uh, that's the general guidelines. So And, and finally, 5-methylcytosine uh, is deregulated in diseases. And, and for instance, it's deregulated in cancer, on urinal disorders. And so the great thing with, with methylcytosine, because it's deregulated in disease, is that it can act as a biomarker, right? And, and DNA is very stable. It's a very easy molecule to study. And so it's very it, it's relatively easy to study 5-MC as a biomarker in disease. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So the methyl group on this uh, side of the position five of the cytosine can also be huh? modified further, right? So there is not only um, five yes. MC, but it can also be like oxidized further. Yes, I mean, you studied exactly. the TET enzymes, for example, right? So <laughs> yes, exactly. So the TET enzymes um, are, you know, enzymes that can hydroxylate my methylcytosine. So they can oxidize methylcytosine into hydroxymethylcytosine, so it's a little bit more oxidized, and then formylcytosine and carboxylcytosine. And it, they play a role in DNA demethylation. And so five um, formyl and five carboxylcytosine can be removed from the DNA and replaced by unmethylated cytosine, which is, you know, does the trick. It's going it's to demethylate the DNA. 5-hydroxymethylcytosine can be either an intermediate for DNA demethylation, or it can be a stable epigenetic mark. And, and it's been shown that there's uh, proteins that bind 5-hydroxymethylcytosine uh, that, that can have a function, you know, biological function. So it's more complicated than just 5-methylcytosine, of course. There's, and, you know, that's what's been known and been discovered. I'm, I'm certain there's lots of other DNA modifications yeah. that are, you know, hidden in, in the DNA that have to be that have to be discovered. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to talk about those other uh, marks, but just uh, focus on 5-MC. Um, so what is the function of 5-MC? So, okay, so function of 5-MC, it's a very good question. So in, in mammals, the one big function is to alter gene expression, right? So when methylation sits at promoters of the genes, very often it's going to shut down the expression of this gene. When methylation sits in the gene body of the genes, then very often it's linked to activation or expression of these genes. So it can have two different functions uh, depending on where it's located. It's also playing a role in genomic imprinting. And so, so that's a process in which alleles are expressed in a parent of origin manner. So for instance, you know, you have a certain gene in your DNA that's going to be, that's going to have a parental expression, not maternal expression. And so the maternal allele will be shut off uh, for this gene. So this gene will be shut off and that's, could be done through DNA methylation. So that's, you know, a role in genomic imprinting. And um, we also know that DNA methylation can uh, stop foreign elements like viral elements that have been integrated into the genome from hopping from one place to another. And so it can shut down the expression of these elements because they're usually unstable. They, they, they render the genome unstable. So, so like transposons, for instance, they can, they can induce translocation. So they have to be shut off. And that can be done by DNA methylation. It's also used by other molecular processes such as DNA replication or DNA repair. And then, you know, as I was saying, it's deregulated in diseases. So in cancer, for instance, we see a global hypermethylation and focal hypermethylation. And this, this focal hypermethylation can be uh, located in tumor-suppressor genes, for instance. And so that means that these genes will be shut off and won't be able to protect the cells against cancers. So, so it's, it's really important in health and disease. And, and to sum up, if you will, it's, you know, DNA methylation is key for biology. And when you take a mouse that is depleted for DNMT1, it's embryonic lethal. So, so, so you have to have the DNA methyl transferase expressed. You have to have DNA methylation. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have serious problems. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
So in this podcast episode, we want to talk about approaches or your approach to analyze DNA methylation. So maybe we can talk about what there were or what the current approaches are to analyze DNA methylation. Right, right, right. So, so I see two type of approaches, um, base resolution approaches that are completely quantitative. And so these methods will give you a very accurate uh, number about DNA methylation. So it tell you a fraction or percentage of methylation in locus XYZ, for instance, or even in this CPG. Um, so it's a base resolution approach. And very often the main technique for that is called bisulfite sequencing. So what is bisulfite sequencing? It's when you incubate your DNA with sodium bisulfite, it's gonna, at high temperature, it's gonna convert the DNA, right? And so unmethylated cytosine will be converted into uridine. So they will be deaminated by sodium bisulfite. No, methyl cytosines will be protected against deamination by bisulfite. By bisulfite. And so they will be remaining Cs or MCs, right? So then when you do an Illumina sequencing of the bisulfide DNA, when you look at CT SNPs, it means that the cytosine was unmethylated, right? Because it's been converted into uridine that is read as a timidine. <laughs> now, when the methyl cytosine is protected, it will be read as a cytosine. So it's really a technique where you look at uh, CT conversions and, and, and that will tell you where DNA was unmethylated. Now, there are two methods that use, two main methods that use bisulfite sequencing. The first one is called whole genome bisulfite sequencing, and that's when we interrogate the whole genome. So it's Illumina sequencing or any other type of sequencing, but we interrogate the whole genome. So there is no enrichment. That is a great method, and that's you know considered gold standard because it gives a full picture, but it's extremely expensive. So you need lots of reads. I'm talking about more than one billion reads, so it's very expensive. Now, there's another very great method called RRBS, or reduced representation bisulfite sequencing. And so this method uses a restriction enzyme that's going to cut what we call CPG islands. And so CPG islands are regions in the genome where there's lots of CPGs. And so there can be a decent amount of methylation in CPG islands. And they also have uh, functions. They're very often located uh, at promoters of genes. So they can be differentially methylated, for instance, in disease or, health, or healthy uh, samples. And so these CPG islands can be assayed by this technical RBS. Now, it's much cheaper because you need less sequencing read to have the same coverage, but it doesn't give the complete picture. So... These are the fully quantitative base resolution approaches. Now, as I said in the beginning, there's two types of methods, base resolution and non-base resolution. The non-base resolution are very often semi-quantitative. So they don't give you an accurate percentage of methylation, and there's certainly not a base resolution. And uh, these are enrichment approaches, such as pull-downs. And uh, a very, um, you know, common method is called MedipSeq or methyl DNA IP sequencing that use an antibody that, that can target DNA methylation. And we can enrich these fragments that are methylated and then do an uh, Illumina sequencing of these guys. There's another method called MirSeq 
that uses uh, MBD, so M methyl binding proteins that can, there are proteins that naturally bind DNA methylation. And so you can use these guys as baits, attach them on beads, and they will uh, capture the fragments that are methylated. And you can sequence them and read them later. So these techniques are great because they need a low sequencing depth. So they're relatively cheap, but they don't offer a base resolution. And very often they're semi-quantitative. Now you can make them fully quantitative or almost fully quantitative by using spike in, uh, in the experiments, but that can complicate a little bit the, the downstream analysis. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so, what yeah. is the, what are then the challenges of those methods? Uh, yeah, why is yeah what is the challenges of those methods? So, you know, as I said, the gold standard is, is whole genome bisulfide sequencing, right? But that's very expensive, and usually, um, you know, what's considered a good coverage. So, you need. So, let me explain. When you when you read the bisulfide sequencing, you look at the reads that pile up a certain cytosine for instance, or a certain CPG. And you want at least, let's say, 25 reads that will pile up uh, this cytosine because you want at to a, have, yeah, At a specific location. At a specific location because you want to have enough coverage to be able to call statistically, uh, you know, a cytosine being methylated or unmethylated. And so imagine if you need to do that over the entire genome, it's going to cost you a lot of money. So, so it's a very expensive method. But again, it gives you the full picture. As you were saying also, another challenge is that there's not only DNA methylation in genome. And there is hydroxymethylation, formulation, and carboxyl cytosines as well, right? And these guys will interfere with bisulfide sequencing. So hydroxymethylation is read as methylation in bisulfide sequencing. They're both protected against deamination by bisulfide. And to complicate even further, formal cytosine and carboxyl cytosine as read as unmethylated cytosine. So these guys will be converted by bisulfide. So when you read a cytosine, it can be either methylated or hydroxymethylated. And when you read um, a timidine, it can be either C, FC, or CAC. So it and, and you can distinguish these ones, not at least with the classical bisulfide sequencing. Um, so that's you know that's a challenge. Um, and then for the enrichment approaches, uh, very often if you want to be more fully quantitative, you will need a spike in normalization, and that can uh, complicate downstream analysis. So, so that's something that you know one has to to take into consideration. So what was then the motivation behind you developing or thinking about developing a new method for profiling DNA methylation? So, well, first, a personal bias. I've always been interested into developing methods. So, so it's something uh, I started doing in, in Angina Rao's lab, a little bit in Francois Fuchs' lab. Uh, but uh, more recently, I've, you know, I wanted to develop a method that people would use and that could be useful for, 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 for the scientific community. So, so they, there's a little bit of that. <laughs> and then also, um, I wanted to develop a method that benefits from an enrichment approach. So it would be relatively cheap, but with a base resolution, such as bisulfide sequencing. So basically, you know, bundle the enrichment with the base resolution and get the best of both worlds. Uh, so, so that was the main motivation behind developing uh, anchor-based bisulfide sequencing. Can you maybe go into the details of that method um, and explain how it works? Yeah, of course, of course. So good question. So, okay, so anchor-based bisulfide sequencing or, or ABBS 
You start with genomic DNA or cell-free DNA. It doesn't really matter. I need a certain amount of DNA to enter the protocol. And then the very first step would be to do a bisulfite treatment. So again, when you incubate DNA with sodium bisulfite at high temperature, the unmethylated cytosine will be converted into uridine and red as T, and methyl cytosine will be protected against deamination by bisulfite. So it will remain cytosines. All right. Then there is a small fragmentation step that is optional. So if you work with um, a cell-free DNA, there's no need of further fragmenting DNA because it's already you know, relatively short. But uh, when we work with genomic DNA, we've seen that we have a better uh, resolution, better. Um, it's a little bit more accurate when you do fragmentation. So we, we do this fragmentation step. So now we are at a stage where we have converted DNA by bisulfide that has been fragmented. And it's it's also important to know that DNA is single-stranded at that stage because the bisulfide treatment works at high temperature. So there is a melting step at some, at some point that will denature DNA. So imagine your single fragments, you know, single-stranded fragments that are converted by bisulfide. So again, when you have a cytosine there, it's because it's been protected by, against deamination. So it's a methyl cytosine, really. Okay. So you want to target these fragments or these cytosines if you want to increase the coverage of methylation. So the way we do that is that we use a specific primer that we call an anchor primer that ends with a guanine or a modified guanine, to be, exact, to be um, precise. And so this modified guanine will hybridize to the cytosine, right? And these cytosines are the ones that were methylated. So then when you add a polymerase and there is a perfect hybridization with the last base in three prime, that is a modified guanosine that will pair with the, the modified cytosine, it's going to be elongated, right? And so the fragments that end up being double-stranded are the ones that are methylated initially. Then there is a selection of these fragments. So we, we use a T4 ligase that um, is only labeled to ligate Illumina adapters on double-strand DNA, right? So there's a DNA repair step, of course, before that. But then the selection, the real selection is done with the T4 ligase, all right? Um, then we ligate adapters to double-strand DNA, and then we can sequence and analyze the result. So really, it's, it's a selection of methylated fragments by specifically um, uh, modified uh, oligonucleotides that are uh, in, primer, in, in random primers. And uh, we can then enrich the double-strand DNA using a T4 ligase. But there is, again, no distinction between the different modifications of the methylation as we described earlier, right? No, there is no distinction okay. of, of, of modification, no. So that this uh, is still a caveat of this uh, method, basically? It's a caveat, yes. But we're thinking about using... Okay, so there is a very cool protocol that has been uh, uh, developed by Chuan Hei called TAPSEQ. Uh, and we could use ABBS uh, in conjunction with TAPSEQ, for instance, to, to identify 5-hydroxymethylcytes. So what are then the features and the advantage of this anchor that you're using? So again, the, the anchor, 
if if you dissect the, the the anchor, it's five random nucleotides and then a terminal guanosine, modified guanosine. And to be exact, it's a PPG. So it's a eight as a seven D as a two deoxyguanosine. Don't ask me to you know to 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 draw it. <laughs> but so this this terminal guanosine, modified guanosine will hybridize perfectly to the methyl cytosine that are being protected against the amination by bisulfide. And then you have an extension by polymerase and a selection with T4-ligase. But so, so really these, these, these anchor, anchor primers will target the primer at methylated sites, okay? And uh, another advantage that we could think of uh, adding to these primers is that one could think of adding an Illumina P5 sequence upstream of the five random nucleotides, for instance, and that would dramatically shorten the library prep. And, and we're certainly working on that. Um, so, so yeah, so again, advantage, it's it's a modified guanosine that targets the, the primer to methylated sites. And then uh, you can bundle that with, you know, a, a library prep where you add uh, Illumina P5 sequences uh, on, on these primers. Yeah. Uh, you then compared, so in the paper that is also um, attached or noted in the show notes, you then compared ABBS to whole genome bisulfide sequencing and RRBS. So how do they, how does it perform in comparison? So it's a very, there is a very good correlation between ABBS and whole genome bisulfide sequencing. We, we got a Pearson correlation coefficient of 0.99, so it cannot get really any better than that. Um, and uh, we've seen that ABBS captures more methylation in average than whole genome bisulfide sequencing. So, so that makes sense because that's what we want. We want to target again with these primers methylated regions. And uh, to, to, to give a few numbers, we uh, capture approximately 15 times more methyl cytosine with ABBS compared to whole genome bisulfide sequencing. It's it's a protocol that is very reproducible. So we've seen that we have good uh, reproducibility uh, with different library prep kits, with different samples, um, with uh, cell lines, with tissues. We work that with cell-free DNA. So it's very well reproducible. And a big advantage of ABBS compared to RRBS is that it's not restricted to CPG islands as RRBS. So RRBS, again, is a method that will assay CPG islands. ABBS gives the full picture. So it looks at methylation genome-wide. So, so, so you, you get a more complete picture. Yeah, ABBS is also a method that enriches And uh, you also compared ABBS then to another method that enriches for methylation, which is MediapSeq. So how do those two compare? Right. So so we did we did compare ABBS to MediapSeq, and so um, as you said, MediapSeq is an enrichment method, and the two compare very well. So again, very good correlation between ABBS and and between MediapSeq. Um, we show that ABBS. Uh, enriches mainly signal in gene bodies, and that's what we've seen as well with MediPSIC. So it's nice when you, you you see the same features with two different orthogonal methods. Uh, so 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 we get this enrichment of gene bodies with both methods. So so that was a, a good a good control, and you know in a way, ABBS is a sort of MediPSIC that gives you a base resolution. All right, so it's an enrichment protocol that is relatively cheap that would give as well 
a single base resolution. So, so it gives you the full picture, uh, another layer of information. And then a big advantage compared to MediPsyc is that you don't need to do a pull down for ABBS. There is no need of antibodies. And we know that uh, antibodies can be biased towards density of methylation. So, so it's, it, it because could of be sterical a, hindrance, right? Exactly. So, so, so the advantage of ABBS is that you can get the same profile as MediPsyc. So you can do a peak calling uh, type of experiment, but you don't need to do the actual pull down. You don't need to use actual antibodies. So what are the overall advantages of ABBS? Maybe you can summarize those again. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, bottom line, it's a cheap method. So it's 10 to 15 times cheaper than whole genome bisulfide sequencing. So you can do 15 times more experiments or samples for the same amount of money. So that, that was the main purpose of developing a, a new method, right? To, to make it cheaper. Um, it's easy and fast. So it, it's, it's uh, between one and two days, depending on how long you stay in the lab and how fast you can work, I guess. Um, and then another advantage of, of ABBS is that the bisulfite treatment is done before ligation of Illumina adapters, right? In the protocol, there is first bisulfite, then the second strand, the anchor second strand, and then we ligate adapters. So it means that there is no loss of material. So let me explain that. So bisulfite treatment is a rather aggressive treatment. It's, it's very acidic and uh, the conversion is done at high temperature, right? And so it can, it can introduce breaks into DNA. So if you ligate, if people, the way people do usually is to ligate adapters and then on, on sonicated DNA and then subject desonicated DNA to bisulfite treatment. All right. And so that can introduce breaks in the DNA that can separate the left and right adapters. And these fragments cannot be longer amplified. With ABBS, we do the bisulfite prior ligation of adapters. So we don't have any loss due to the harsh treatment of bisulfite. So that's another advantage of that. And then finally, uh, because most of the reads are methylated, uh, there is a higher complexity of nucleotides. So, so the alignment to the genome is usually better. We have a better rate of alignment. Uh, so, so more reads that can be effectively used. An important part with sequencing methods is always the bioinformatics, right? So is there any difference yep. in the bioinformatic analysis compared to a whole genome bisulfide sequencing? So there is one difference. So again, as, as I explained, the, the ligation of adapters is done after the bisulfide treatment, right? So you're going to have to, to use a small option called PBAT for post-bisulfide adapter tagging, which is a method that has been developed before. Um, and um, this, this method uh, has been embedded uh, in a package called Bismarck that we were using to do the bioinformatic analysis. And so you just select, you know, that you used uh, PBAT. So you, you do the ligation after the uh, the bisulfite treatment. And, you know, besides that, the, the, the whole bulk of analysis is the same. So, so it's the same as whole genome bisulfite sequencing. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty similar. So uh, you don't need to be a hardcore coder. Uh, uh, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just use you know packages for methylation analysis, and just tweak a little bit the alignment, and that's about it. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for your time and for explaining all about the ABBS. 
thank you so much for inviting me to this show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.